The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello there, you marvellous human. Thank you so much for joining me today for episode 34 of Things Are About To Get Weird. If, like me, you're the kind of person who is utterly obsessed with strange but true stories, weird crime tales, and even the odd paranormal saga too, this is definitely the podcast for you. Today, I'm going to be telling you all about the man known by numerous nicknames, including... Iron Mike Malloy, Mike the Durable, Rasputin of the Bronx, or if we're getting straight to the crux of things, the man who could not be murdered. Well, almost, anyway. I've wanted to feature this unbelievable story on the podcast for weeks now, so I'm going to get right into it. As I'm sure you can tell from the title and what I've said so far, there will be some details of violence in this episode as well as themes of alcohol addiction too, so do keep that in mind. As always, when I feature stories like these, I will be putting some links in the show notes to mental health and addiction help resources. All of that said, let's head back to 1932, where we find ourselves in a speakeasy in one of New York City's most famous boroughs. The Marino Bar in the Bronx, named after its owner, Tony Marino, was one of the many secret establishments opened during the United States Prohibition years. This was because, at the time, it was actually illegal to make, sell or transport alcoholic beverages in the States. But as we know, people can get very creative when it comes to forbidden vices. And so the idea of the hidden speakeasy bar became quietly popular. But one afternoon in July of 1932, three men huddled around their illicit drinks began to talk of an unlawful activity that far outweighed their alcohol consumption in terms of seriousness. They decided that they were going to kill their friend. I know, talk about going from zero to a hundred, but despite their plan being nothing short of heinous, There was, in their minds, some kind of twisted logic behind it. Allow me to explain. The three men in question were Tony Marino, the bar owner, Francis Pasqua, a then 24-year-old undertaker, and Daniel Kreisberg, a grocer and 29-year-old father of three. Francis and Daniel were regulars at Marino's, and were not only on friendly terms with the man serving them their drinks, but with several of the other patrons of the speakeasy too including, you guessed it, Mr. Michael Malloy, better known to his acquaintances at this time simply as Mike. And although I wish I could give you a detailed backstory of Mike's journey, and some context as to how he ended up in New York after being born and raised in Ireland, sadly very little information about him has ever been available, including to those who knew him in the States. Other than the fact he was born in 1873 in County Donegal, arrived in New York at some point during the 1920s, and at one point worked as a firefighter, many details about Mike's life have been lost to history. But when it comes to his death, the absolute opposite is true. Now at this time, in 1932, Mike was a particularly frequent visitor to Marino's Bar and numerous other speakeasies in the Bronx too. 
Sadly, he had fallen on some very difficult times and it appears he had become dependent on alcohol. Reports vary on exactly what this looked like for Mike. While some say that he would drink at the establishments every night, often passing out from the amount of alcohol he consumed, Others say that he would be the first customer in each morning and would be completely inebriated by lunchtime most days. As you can imagine, writings from back in the 1930s about Mike's excessive drinking were not at all kind, with the Daily Mirror describing him as part of the quote, flotsam and jetsam in the swift current of underworld speakeasy life those no longer responsible derelicts who stumble through the last days of their lives in a continual haze of Bowery smoke. But a much more compassionate way to look at Mike's situation was this. He was far away from home, spoke of no family members or very close friends to those he knew from the bars, and would do odd jobs around the Bronx in exchange for alcohol. It seems to me that he was in a very vulnerable position, and when an opportunity to exploit this for financial gain arose, Tony, Francis and Daniel made a pact to see their terrible plan through. According to reports from the time, it was actually the undertaker, Francis Pasqua, who first broached the subject of them bringing about Mike's untimely death when he posed an incredibly leading question to Tony Marino. Why don't you take out insurance on Malloy? This piqued Daniel Kreisberg's interest. And before long, the conversation evolved into a full-on plot to commit insurance fraud. The men began to rationalise their plan, trying to reassure themselves and each other that Mike's alcohol consumption meant he couldn't possibly have much longer left to live anyway. He was nearing 60 yet looked much older, and they talked about how he wouldn't be missed by anyone other than his drinking buddies. And to them, all of this added up to make Mike an ideal target for their scheme. Absolutely abhorrent, of course, but clearly the thought of the insurance payout they could pocket after Mike's death was enough to push them forward. They decided that the least suspicious approach they could take was to try and make Mike drink himself into an early grave. He was already at the point where he could no longer pay his bar bill at Marino's, and Tony was allowing him to keep an open tab, so they felt this would be their best bet at carrying out the crime undetected. The trio were confident that their plan would work, but none more so than Tony himself. Because, believe it or not, this wasn't his first rodeo. Under an eerily similar set of circumstances just the previous year, he had first befriended and then persuaded a lady named Mabel Carson to take out a $2,000 life insurance policy on herself, with his name down on the paperwork as the beneficiary in the event of her death. At the time she met Tony, Mabel was homeless, and when he offered her a place to stay, she gratefully accepted the offer. But Tony's true intentions soon revealed themselves. One freezing cold night, he plied Mabel with copious amounts of alcohol in preparation for what was to come next. When she was incapacitated, he removed all of her clothes, soaked her bedsheets and mattress with ice-cold water, 
and placed them next to an open window. Tony laid Mabel in the bed and due to this combination of factors, she became incredibly unwell. Tragically, she passed away not long afterwards, with a form of pneumonia being officially recorded as her cause of death and Tony collected the money from her life insurance policy. Now, if Tony had been acting alone in these schemes, it would be easier to get your head around in a way. There are terrible people in the world who do terrible things, and we like to believe that they are very few and far between. But before long, it wasn't just Tony, Francis and Daniel who were in on the plot to murder Mike Malloy. Numerous others connected to the speakeasy, including bartender Joseph Murphy, had heard about this idea and wanted to be part of it. And here is what they did. Rather than getting an insurance policy put in place for Mike Malloy, they decided to throw a dash of identity fraud into the mix too, inventing a fictional person named Nicholas Mellory to insure instead. They said he was a professional florist, and with a huge amount of corner cutting and some underhand tactics, five months later, the team, led by Francis, had managed to secure three separate life insurance policies. If Mike, well, Nicholas, died accidentally, his beneficiary would receive a payout of around $80,000 in today's money. The bartender, Joseph Murphy, agreed that when the time came, he would pose as the dead man's next of kin and would identify Mike's body as Nicholas Mellory. They would then split the money between them and presumably go on with their lives. Now, all that was left to do was to orchestrate the ending of Mike's life. And here is where this story flips from a gritty New York crime tale to something significantly stranger. So by this point, it was December of 1932, and the group decided it was time to act. When Mike next walked into Marino's bar, he was met with a surprise from Tony. His bar tab had been left open and would be covered by the house and a gleeful Mike wasted no time in taking up this seemingly generous offer. He spent the rest of that day drinking continuously, only pausing to eat. As soon as his glass was empty, Tony was there to refill it. As the hours wore on, Tony was watching Mike like a hawk, waiting for the moment when he'd reach and then eventually topple over his limit. He was sure that the friendly Irishman had drunk enough to cause him some serious harm, yet Mike didn't seem to be suffering. In fact, by closing time, he was still standing. He thanked Tony for the free booze, said he'd be back tomorrow, and disappeared into the night. True to his word, he returned to Marino's the next day, and the same pattern repeated. At the end of the night, Mike told Tony he was grateful for the hospitality and that he'd be back. By the end of day three, when Mike left the bar once again, the group knew they needed to rethink their approach. Mike's alcohol tolerance was just too high for their scheme to be a success anytime soon. And out of frustration at losing so much money on the free drinks he'd provided Mike with, Tony made the suggestion that someone should simply shoot their would-be victim. I imagine because the life insurance policies stated that the payout was conditional on death being accidental, this plan was quickly disregarded. But Joseph Murphy wasn't far behind his boss with another extreme yet potentially effective idea. 
Wood alcohol or methanol, which is the type of alcohol used in the manufacture of things like antifreeze and paint thinner, is a highly dangerous and incredibly poisonous liquid, which had caused the deaths of tens of thousands of people in the United States during the Prohibition era. With alcoholic beverages being made illegal, some people turned to consuming these impure forms of alcohol, which are very, very toxic and should never be drunk. I'm sure it goes without saying, but just to be clear, please never ever even consider drinking it. Even drinks containing a small percentage of wood alcohol could have dire health consequences, and Joseph suggested this could be their key to ending Mike's life. This is hideous and genuinely makes me queasy, but they decided to start switching some of his drinks to shots of pure wood alcohol. Just the thought is awful. They would begin by serving him cheap whiskey or gin, then move on to the methanol in an attempt to disguise what I can only imagine is a horrific taste. But if they had thought that Mike was made of stern stuff before, they were in for a whole new level of shock as whilst the wood alcohol did make him pass out and look very much worse for wear, after breaks of a few hours at a time, Mike would simply bounce back and ask for more. Honestly, it makes me feel really sad for him, and makes the group's already sinister plot feel even more horrible. But as time wore on, Tony once again grew tired of how much money he was expending on not only whiskey and gin, but now on wood alcohol too, and the group swapped tactics once more. Their next port of call was to try and poison Mike via his food. Apparently, Francis Pasqua had once witnessed a man die after eating oysters which had been soaked in whiskey, so they decided to ramp this up a level by marinating some in wood alcohol instead. Mike was fond of seafood and ate the oysters without question, but no matter how many he tasted, the oysters seemed to have no adverse effects on him. The group members were growing ever more impatient, although they were also somewhat fascinated by Mike's resilience. Realising that anything connected to their initial plan of alcohol poisoning was likely not going to work, they took their plans up a notch. Joseph Murphy opened a can of sardines, left them out to go off for a few days, and then mixed them with all kinds of shrapnel from incredibly sharp shards of metal to carpet tacks, and used it as a sandwich filling. The snack was then served to Mike after he'd had a few drinks, and the group watched as he ate the meal that they thought would, and I'm so sorry to have to phrase it like this, tear him up from the inside. Mike not only ate the sandwich with no complaints, but several sources even say that he asked for a second helping after finishing it, which only makes me think that he couldn't possibly have chewed it properly, or else he would have cracked his teeth on the metal. But regardless, it was yet another failed attempt to kill him, as Mike didn't complain of any internal discomfort after eating what Murphy had prepared. And so, after meeting to discuss their next course of action, the group opted to default back to a tactic Tony Marino was somewhat familiar with. They planned to take advantage of the sub-zero New York winter weather to help bring their plan to murder Mike to its conclusion. That year, the nighttime temperatures regularly fell to well below freezing, around minus 12 degrees Celsius, and this formed the basis of their next attempt on Mike's life. 
In a terrible mirroring of Tony's treatment of Mabel Carson the year before, the group waited for a particularly cold night to roll around. When it did, they proceeded to get Mike so drunk that he passed out, and then they sprung into action. They removed all of his clothing, dragged him through the snow-covered streets, put him in a car, and drove him to Crotona Park. There, they placed him on one of the park's benches and left him to freeze. But just in case that wasn't enough, they doused him in gallons of cold water to increase the chances of this idea becoming fatal, and drove back to Marino's bar. However, the very next morning, they would discover that this heartless act had been carried out in vain. Because when Tony arrived at work and ventured down into the basement, who should he find curled up on the floor after trekking half a mile in the snow, but Mike Malloy himself, very much alive but complaining of a quote, wee chill. So let's take a step back for a moment and think about all that Mike has survived up until this point. Not only had he lived through the group virtually pouring lethal levels of whiskey, gin and wood alcohol down his throat, but poisoned oysters and metal-laden sandwiches, and now a freezing setup which surely should have resulted in his demise. It's not hard to understand how this seemingly unmurderable man gained his nicknames. Iron Mike Malloy seems fitting given that it's what his stomach must have been made of, and really, Mike the Durable speaks for itself. But the attempts to kill him were nowhere near finished. In fact, just in case the events so far hadn't been bizarre enough, things were about to get a whole lot weirder. So we're now into February, and what's due again? The insurance policy payment, of course. Don't forget, the group was paying monthly for the privilege of having the policies, and each month they paid for them was another blow to the total amount they'd receive after Mike's death. Yet another member of the growing group, John McNally, made the suggestion that someone should hit Mike with a car. And although opinions amongst the other men on this were mixed, others, including Tony Marino, started to get on board. They ended up roping in a taxi driver named Hershey Green to actually carry out what they hoped would be their final assault against Mike. Although God knows how they convinced him. I assumed they offered him a decent chunk of the promised payout, but really it would have only added up to the modern equivalent of just over $3,000. So, once the arrangements were in place, the group chose a night when Mike had become particularly inebriated following a drinking session at Marino's. Members of the group bundled Mike into Hershey's taxi, headed to a nearby street, and proceeded to get out and carry Mike into the middle of the road. Two group members held him up, one standing on either side, and Hershey prepared to drive directly at their unsuspecting victim. Just before the taxi driver made his first attempt, the try was abruptly stopped as one of the group saw a light come on in a nearby building. On both the first and second full tries, Mike managed to come to and sense the danger he was in, jumping out of the way of the car at the last second. On the third go, however, the car made impact. Hershey hit him at speed, and Mike's body fell to the cold ground. Though the group were positive he hadn't survived, Hershey wanted to be sure, 
and this is really awful, but he actually reversed over Mike a final time. It's honestly so grim. Confident that there was no way he was still alive, the men quickly fled the scene, and over the next few days, they awaited the news that Mike's body had been discovered. Though Mike hadn't turned up at Marino's, and the group was sure he had perished, they were starting to get concerned as no reports of his accident and death had appeared in the local newspapers. Joseph Murphy, posing as Mike's alias Nicholas Mellory's brother, began to call the local morgues and hospitals to see if anyone matching his fake sibling's description had turned up. When he had no luck, he broke the news to the rest of the group, who were initially confused and then frustrated. If by some miracle Mike had survived the attack, his injuries would have been catastrophic and he would have needed serious long-term hospital care. So it made absolutely no sense that he wouldn't have been an inpatient at one of the local health centres. Some of the group members, Francis Pasqua in particular, had grown desperate and even floated the idea of finding a homeless man to kill and profit from instead of Mike. But before they could set this despicable act into motion, the unthinkable happened once more. Mike Malloy turned up at Marino's, alive and as well as he could be, talking about how he had woken up in hospital with several broken bones, but discharged himself as soon as he could. His memories of the night were patchy at best, and he didn't seem to remember that the very men he was chatting to were the ones who had plotted his death. I would have loved to have seen the looks on their faces when Mike walked in. What on earth must have been going through their minds? The man they thought would be so easy to kill was proving to be made of steel, and the task was harder than they could have ever anticipated. Their more covert efforts had now failed and their bolder move with the taxi had been equally ineffective. So they made the decision to do away with all attempts to take his life through methods which had a chance of not working out. Once again, this is really horrible. I know I've said that throughout this story, but it all just feels so evil. But it was time for their final move. On the 21st of February 1933, after Mike had passed out from drinking in the bar that night, the group took him to a nearby dwelling and forced an open gas pipe down his throat. Despite Mike appearing to have nine lives, and regardless of everything he had lived through until this point, there was tragically no saving him this time. Mike Malloy finally succumbed to this last assault and was dead within an hour. A friend of Francis Pasqua's named Dr. Frank Manzella forged Mike's death certificate, saying he had passed away as a result of pneumonia and the group were able to claim their ill-gotten prize. But because Mike's body had been buried quickly to avoid any further questions being raised about his death, two of the three insurance policies were not eligible to be paid out. The one that was paid out only totaled enough so that when split between all of the men, they each had enough to buy themselves a new suit, which is exactly what both Joseph Murphy and Tony Marino did. It's honestly beyond comprehension what these men did and for what. No amount of money is worth taking someone's life for, of course. 
but that was their only motivation in this case, and look what they actually got at the end of it. And that's before we even consider the events that followed. Now, it seems that word about Mike's story and reputation as the man who was almost unkillable had started to spread around the Bronx. The last couple of months he spent on Earth were wild, to say the least, and what he survived against all odds before that final night was nothing short of extraordinary. But once the gossip reached the ears of some local policemen who frequented the speakeasies, and Mike Malloy's name was raised they started to look deeper into the case. A full investigation into his death was ordered, which included his body being exhumed and a proper autopsy being done to determine his true cause of death. It quickly became clear that Mike had not passed away due to natural causes, and that he had, in fact, been murdered. From this point, everything soon unravelled. The group members were all arrested and were soon dubbed the Murder Trust by the press. Four of the key members, Tony Marino, Joseph Murphy, Francis Pasqua and Daniel Kreisberg, were all convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. They all faced the electric chair and paid for their crime with their lives. The taxi driver, Hershey Green, was also found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Some reports say that he was relatively cooperative with the police, so there's a chance that he was able to escape the death penalty by acting as a witness against the other four. But regardless, he still received a serious punishment. An interesting bonus fact in this case is that Mike's murder was one of the very first cases to be investigated by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, which was a newly established operation at the time. I imagine that it was somewhat concerning to New York's criminals, who may have never previously considered that such a scientific approach to an investigation like this would ever be taken. Hopefully, it would have ended up inadvertently saving the lives of other would-be murder victims, whose perpetrators reconsidered carrying out their crime. I wanted to finish this story by remembering Mike, not his torturers and killers. Whilst his story is borderline unbelievable, it's also incredibly tragic. The men who murdered him may not have known much about him, and viewed him as an easy target due to his addiction, but he was a human being who deserved so much better. There's no telling what may have become of Mike had the group decided to stop after their second or third or fourth attempt on his life, but he should have been around and had that chance to live out the rest of his years. The fact that there was even talk of replacing him as their victim with another man down on his luck really displays how little the group thought of Mike, and it's really quite upsetting. In the end, though, this case truly is a good reminder that crimes like these, quite literally, do not pay. Wow, I know that was a very heavy story at times, but I really hope you found this strange but true tale as gripping as I did. Had you ever heard of Mike Malloy before? 
I must say that until a few weeks ago, I hadn't. And although I know this case was explored in a documentary shown on TV in Ireland back in 2015, I think it would be fascinating to see it played out on a more widely available scale. It does feel like these events could form the basis of a film, which I know I say a lot, but come on, this one does sound like the plot of a movie as it stands. I can't wait to find out what you made of this case, especially on that point I made about the number of people involved. Do you think they were all equally as disturbed as each other? Was it a case of the ringleaders roping people in who would otherwise never have considered being part of something like this, but the promise of money was too strong to resist? I'll be running through all of the ways you can get in touch right after our outro feature, Weird Media. This recommendation has been quite literally sitting on my bedside table for months now, and I feel like it's the perfect time to mention it as we're definitely due a book-themed weird media segment. And the title in question is Cursed Objects by J.W. Ocker. I received this book as a birthday gift from my sister and her partner last year, and as soon as I opened it, I was obsessed as even the front cover is stunning. It's essentially a compilation of fact files about some of the world's most infamous cursed items, and the strange but true stories behind them, which is clearly right up my street. The book delves into both the more well-known items, like Annabelle the Doll, who inspired the series of Annabelle films, and made appearances in movies like The Conjuring, but there are also tons of other stories I'd never heard before. For example, there's something called the Cursing Stone located up in Carlisle, which has such a fascinating backstory that I might actually dedicate a whole episode to it in the future. Some of the tales are really quite disturbing, like the one about the gravestone of Carl Pruitt, and then there are sections which focus on more of the business side of cursed objects, which is so interesting. I actually followed the author, J.W. Ocker, on Instagram after I started to read the book, and he seems super cool. He has a website called oddthingsivesseen.com, where he documents his strange travels, and he's written a number of other books too. One of them is called Poland, which I really want to read, especially after all of the research I did for our episode about some of Edgar Allan Poe's weird predictions. But back to cursed objects. I always think there's a special kind of weird appeal when a strange story centres around a physical object or series of objects kind of like the concrete flooring in our episode about the Belmez faces. On one hand, some people may find that they're more sceptical, because they think, how on earth could this inanimate object be harbouring any supernatural energy? But on the other hand, a physical item can provide some level of tangibility within a spooky tale, especially if it's something you could hold in your hands. Oh, it is all so fascinating and the book is well worth a read. So if you do decide to check it out, I would love to know your thoughts. Okay, a super quick nod to the sources which helped me put together today's episode. I actually first stumbled across this story on a website about insurance, believe it or not. There was an article on surfkey.com about the most bizarre cases of life insurance fraud in history. And of course, Mike's tale was featured on there. Then I found a piece from the Smithsonian Magazine by Karen Abbott from February 2012, which was so helpful. 
along with a brilliant article from the Irish Post from August of 2022. There was an article from allthat'sinteresting.com by Daniel Rennie from May 2018, which was great, as well as an Irish Central piece from December 2022. A speedy recap of all the ways you can get in touch or become part of our awesome community on social media. On Instagram, we're at Things Get Weird Podcast, and I always post photos relating to each episode over there once it goes live. I also love Facebook to chat with you all. We have both the private discussion group and the main podcast page too. So if you search Things Are About To Get Weird on Facebook, you'll find them both. Our Twitter is pretty inactive, but we're at about to get weird over there. And our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon page where you can choose to support the show with a small monthly donation if you would like to. The Patreon is always linked in the show notes. And there will also be those mental health and addiction help resources I mentioned linked there too. A big thank you for joining me today and for continuing to be so wonderfully supportive of the podcast. I keep getting alerts that we're appearing on the Apple Podcast True Crime charts in countries all over the world, from Jordan to Austria to Nigeria, and it honestly means so much to me. If you are enjoying the show and would like to leave a quick rating or review wherever you listen, it helps more than you know and I truly appreciate it. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but a good kind of weird. <laughs>